Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Preeti Christel, where I ask her, how has our medicine system expired? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited to welcome to our show, Preeti Christel. You are a health justice lawyer and you also co-founded IMAC, which is a nonprofit building a more equitable medicines system. That is a big, hard job that you are doing. <laughs> so thanks for having me, Jonathan. It is a big job. It's a big job and there's a lot of us doing it. The Access to Medicines movement, we're all over the world and there are people in every continent who are fighting for a more just medicine system so that treatments and vaccines and testing reaches everybody who needs it. Okay, so here's the thing. I think that you are such an incredible person to talk to about this because you are a health justice lawyer. I didn't even know that health justice lawyers existed before I read about you and listened to some of the podcasts that you've done. I think we all have a stake in obvious access to medicine. I've lived it as someone who's living with HIV. That is like its whole own other podcast and access to those drugs is its like whole other series of podcasts. But most recently with COVID, you know, we all do have a stake in this. We are all living through this pandemic together and the misinformation and the um, vaccine hesitance has really crept into my life in such a way that I didn't realize that it was going to. I thought that it was something about that I was like going to read on the news. And in reality, it's in friends, it's in family. It's, I mean, every week there is more people coming out of the woodwork who I love and care for so much. And I am hearing just this heartbreaking stuff that is coming out of them. So I am really determined to figure out more about why this is like this. And I think that not only can we talk about uh, misinformation and vaccine misinformation, which is a different podcast with a different person, I think we really need to understand what are vaccines? Who owns vaccines? And more importantly, what I was thinking about is why is it, why is who owns and develops and regulates vaccines so important? Because that is... That's to me is like one of the million dollar questions because it is just such a complicated, vast system that I think people are really overwhelmed by and they're scared. <laughs> people are scared. And so I feel like you are the person to demystify this. So to start off, and it's most basic, that's you know, just so you know where I'm coming from. Um, what is a dang patent? <sighs> so patents... The original intention behind patents was that they are a time-limited monopoly. So if you invent something, we want to motivate you to invent your thing. And so we're going to reward you with a monopoly. That was the original intention. But today, big corporations hire lawyers, they hire lobbyists, they file as many patents as possible, and they're basically trying to hold on to their monopoly power so they can stay the only ones on the market who are in charge of selling their product. And we're seeing the result of that with America's prescription drug pricing crisis. We're seeing it with global COVID vaccine equity. When you give this much power to a handful of people or actors, it actually can be a problem if there's not checks and balances in the system. Uh, Absolutely. And so you just said a monopoly. And it's like, I thought that 
when someone had a monopoly on something, you had to not pass go. And the Supreme Court would strike your monopoly down. Like, haven't we heard about these monopolies getting broken up before? But in the medical field, it's encouraged or it's just like what it is? I think across the board today, we have a monopoly problem. And there's amazing organizations doing work on this. Open Markets Institute, American Economic Liberties Project, Um, From a racial justice perspective, liberation in a generation, there's all of these civil society actors who have come up to say, wait a second, whether you're talking about who we get our cable from or what airline we fly or whether people have cell phone access in prison, across the board, we have a monopoly problem in America today. Because over the last 40 years, What you're talking about is essentially antitrust or the ability of the government to regulate monopolies that has been eroded over time. And I think there is a new movement of actors across actually the political spectrum saying, hold on a sec, big tech has too much power, big pharma has too much power. So how are we all going to join together to really push back against that power? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, but how does like medical patents differ from like other like intellectual property? You know what I mean? Like trademarks and stuff. So there's different kinds of intellectual property. The basic idea is the same, is that it's giving you a right to exclude everybody else from whatever it is. So with patents, it could be on things like your cell phone or your insulin. Uh, Trademarks can be about your brand. So if you get trademark protection and you're Nike, you can protect just do it. Or, you know, Coca-Cola, like that term could be trademarked. Um, And then there's copyright, which is, you know, for literature or music or nowadays for podcasts. It's a protection for you for your creative work. Oh my God, do we need a copyright? Just kidding. Um, (laughs) uh, But so there's that. So there's trademark, copyright, and then there's patent. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that kind of, does that cover them all? There are more forms of IP, but I think those are the most commonly, you know, known and used forms. And patents are for things like the actual medicine or the actual device you take your medicine in. It's for the technical invention. Because we've we definitely got to learn about a little bit on diabetes from Elizabeth Feaster, who we love so uh, much. I learned a, she's amazing. Oh my god, you know her? I know her from T One International, the yes, diabetes. T One International. She's incredible. She's oh my god. Oh, she's amazing. Small world. I love her so much. But I learned about some like things about like the. You guys, I'm making a face and I'm trying not to cuss in front of a lawyer a million times, but I'm <laughs> trying to keep it professional. But yeah, she she told me some of the things about it and it is such a nightmare. So, yeah. so earlier you said that like, you know, these companies will file like patent after patent after patent. So let's talk about vaccines. We got the Pfizer mm-hmm. slash biotech or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then we got our Moderna. Mm-hmm. Then you've got your J&J, of course. Then over mm-hmm. there in Europe, you got your AstraZeneca, honey. You Then you got your, <laughs> not you, honey, just me. And then also, of course, we've got that, uh, the Sputnik one. So would Sputnik and AstraZeneca even be patented in the United States because they're not available here? Or would those companies have like already applied for a patent on those exact ones here? So it takes time for patent applications to be public, to be published so that the public can see them. But in general, companies do patent in multiple countries because even if 
you're an American company who mainly wants to supply America, you still want to make sure nobody else anywhere is making your product unless you've licensed to them. So usually the major pharmaceutical companies will apply for their patents all over the world. They're national rights. They don't, you don't just get it a global one when you apply. So, but like every country, do, do they have their own patent system? Most countries do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. then, so, and then, so in the U.S., who grants patents? There's an agency that nobody's ever heard of called the Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, and it always, you know, I think about it all the time, how nobody knows about this agency because everything from your phone to your prescription drugs to Velcro to if you want to get a DNA test, everything is patented. And so it touches every part of your life. And yet people don't know about the PTO, this agency. Um, it's small, uh, but mighty. They are managing, you know, millions of patents over there. And it's the place that makes the decisions. It's the place that's got a lot of power, you know, that affects people's health and lives. So, okay. Because I think this is like where my brain starts to like, it it reminds me of when I walked into college astronomy and thought I was going to learn about like Zodiac stuff. And then it was all this like three-dimensional math. And I was like, holy shit, my brain like (laughs) just was like, like it just like started to like short circuit. So it's like the company has a scientist, they get their... I, they, they get their idea for their medicine. They file a patent. <laughs> then do they go to the FDA or like the CDC to organize trials? Yeah, it's a great question. So if you are inventing a medicine or a vaccine, you go to different places. Much earlier on, usually, uh, you would go to the patent office and apply for your patent. That's the first thing you do because you'd want to protect it. Even before you know what it is. Even before you know what it is. That's the key. And early on, and what companies actually do, and we're seeing this more and more in our research, you actually file a ton of patents because you want to make sure nobody's even, you know, you put up a fence. You don't want anybody getting even anywhere close to figuring out what you figured out. And then you keep developing it. You keep building that fence higher and higher. And then you go to the FDA. And you want you need to prove to the government that your drug or your vaccine is safe, that it's efficacious or effective. uh, And then they give you your protection. And then what we see through our research is that after they get that approval from the FDA, they start filing tons of patents because now what they want to do is they want to block competition off the market for as long as possible. I don't know if you ever like listened to this podcast. I I have an annoying habit of comparing everything to Aaron Brockovich and talking too much generally. (laughs) So I'm just going to tell you that straight up. Okay. Okay. So what happens? The, the fierce lawyers go, maybe now it's all virtual, but like when you, you know, you, you get the gorgeous like packet of papers to do your patent, you write it or something, and then you go file it at this PT. Mm -hmm. the patent and trademark office? So it depends on who you are. If you're a major corporation or university, you've got whole law firms and your own in-house department of lawyers who's going to do all of this for you. If you're an individual who has an idea or a small business or a startup, um, it's a more onerous task, right? You got to figure out what the paperwork is. You probably have to hire a lawyer. There are a lot of costs associated with it. And so it takes time and That's why it's a little bit unfair the whole way the whole system works, because it's definitely harder for the little guy. But the PTO does a pretty good job. Like they have a pro bono program that most people haven't heard of uh, that helps 
you know, individuals or small businesses apply. Uh, and Congress did something really good, which is that they've actually in 2011, they made it cheaper. If you're small, it's cheaper for you than if you're a giant corporation. Oh, I love a sliding scale. Yeah. You know where, so here's my whole thing, where we don't have a sliding scale is if you want to challenge a patent. So my organization and many people in the access to medicines movement, like we did this a lot for HIV. If a medication has too many patents filed on it and they're just trying to hold on to their monopoly and make sure drugs can't get cheaper, we used to go in and we used to challenge those patents. But here in the U.S., it's really hard to do that because they don't have a sliding scale. So if you want to challenge, let's say, 10 patents on an HIV drug, just to file the cases would cost you something around $300,000. What does all those different little patents look like as they as you're building your big ass like, you know, that fence is like 80 feet thick and 100 feet tall. Yeah. What are those like bricks that go horizontally that make it so thick? What do all those patents look like that are like different? Like one's like to a particular molecule that's like a part of. Yeah, that's great. That's it. So early on, remember I told you they want to make sure nobody else is researching in their space. So there we see a lot of the compound or the molecule, like you called it. There's a lot of that kind of activity. But then what we've been able to see as we've gone through and, you know, played the patent detective role is that after they get FDA approval and the government says, okay, your drug is safe and it's effective, you can start putting it on the market and treating people. Then the patent applications, it just becomes a lot more clear. They're doing it to block the competition and just hold on to the market. There's things in there like the method of how you treat people or, um, a different form, like a syrup instead of a tablet. Or they say, here's a new patent because it's 50 milligrams in dosage instead of 20. It's a lot more, it becomes a lot more frivolous later on. I was going to ask that. So it's like, so it, could it even be as simple as like, oh, we're changing like the part of this vaccine from like a like a synthetic goat serum to a synthetic goat, like what, you know, cause like there's like, the, like I've read that there has to be like, whatever, focus. But yeah, like, <laughs> but basically just like things that are like relatively like not that important to the end product of what you're patenting. It's just like your whole entire process. And that's why you had to be a detective and a lawyer. The main barrier is that there are so many, like right now on the 10 best selling drugs in America, there are over 130 patents being filed on one drug, right? And then they're probably getting about 60 of those. Like they're actually getting that level of protection. So when you have 60 patents on one drug, who's going to look through those? A patent can be hundreds of pages of just chemistry to read through. You know, really who's looking through those? So we've done it and it's it's a big job, but at the end of the day, when you read through the ones that are filed later, they really are, they're just being filed as placeholders because that's what our corporations are incentivized to do, right? They're supposed to maximize revenue for their share, shareholders, so. so. Which is why, I mean, well, which is why we shouldn't, like, so why healthcare shouldn't be for profit when you have, you know, it's like, because pandemic, it's like, you know, it's not getting your hair done. This, you know, it's not, honey, this is a right. It's a human right. We healthcare get, get together. Not you, honey, like the public, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Not, yeah. So, okay, wait. So, um, do you know off the top of your head, like how many uh, patents are on any of the vaccines or are they all too new to know how many patents there are? They are too new right now. 
we're slowly starting to get information, but uh, I think in the coming months, we're going to get a lot more information. So also uh, one more question. Have you seen Aaron Brockovich? I feel like a long time ago. I almost feel like your type of law is like if Ed Masry had meant to get into like healthcare law, like he did it by accident, but like you did it on purpose from the get go because you have vision. Yes. Obsessed. (laughs) So with the patent and trademark office, I Mm -hmm. just wanted to ask really quick, is that like a postmaster thing where it's like 10 years that like a president appoints the leader to or something like who leads it? Or is it just like some random person that we don't know about? No, that's a great question. The president does pick who they want. Um, and this is a big conversation actually that's happening, which is so many of our agencies are appointees, you know, where the president actually picks them, but they have so much power over our lives. So when we pick our president, it actually has all of these implications. Like in this moment, whoever's heading the patent and trademark office is going to have the power to do so many things like look over the IP for our COVID vaccines or think about what's happening with this pharmaceutical trend of filing hundreds of patents on one drug. So it's a really important position. And we're waiting right now, actually, for the president to pick who's going to head the patent and trademark office like for the next few years. So what about when you said earlier about that you when you're so IMAC has like knocked out patents before or like challenged them? Yes. So what, so if that's successful and you're able to like knock out like or take out enough of those little baby bricks, like does the whole patent crumble and then you can get like a generic drug on the market or something? That's right. And we do, we don't go after all the patents. We go after, remember I told you at the very end, after FDA approval, you know, when they want no competition, uh, we go, we look at those and we're like, these aren't really inventive. This is just some business gaming strategy a bunch of lawyers came up with. So we go after those and then it shortens the life of their monopoly. So then you can get other people on the market, other generics. Uh, and when you have generics, you know, the data shows that prices come down by up to 80%. So that's the goal is that more people should be able to get the drug. It should be cheaper. And then you said that they do have a sliding scale for how much a patent costs, but not sliding scale to challenge one. So how much does filing a patent cost like ballpark for like an individual versus like a corporation? I can tell you that it costs on average. It's really confusing and complicated, but on average, it costs ten to thirty thousand dollars to file and maintain your patent, which means you got to figure out how to do the paperwork. You got to hire a lawyer. And then to keep your patent alive, you have to pay maintenance fees. So it's not clear, actually, but that's roughly in the ballpark for one patent, how much it would cost. And then how long does a patent last? It's supposed to be 20 years. That was the original intention uh, when the law was amended in recent years. When we first got a patent system in this country, you know, shortly after the constitution, it was much shorter. And then slowly over the years, we worked our way up to 20 years. What companies are doing though, and universities, like I'm saying, they're building these patent walls around one product. So that's why you see things like insulin that are still patented or things that are really old are still getting more and more patents filed on them. And some, you know, it's going to cost us a lot too. This is the other problem. Like the drug, the cancer drug that's about to be the top selling drug in the world. It's called Keytruda. I think 
they've already filed a hundred patents on it. And in the extra years of monopoly over the 20 years that they're going to get, it's going to cost America $137 billion for that one drug in those eight years. So this is the point of building patent walls. It means you can make even more money later on. $137 billion in eight years. It's a good life. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. You guys, that is so much money. It's a lot of money. That is so fucked up. Obviously, I don't need to tell you that, but like, fuck. Um, okay, I'm sorry. I just have to like, that just, I'm sorry. It just, it took me off guard. I wasn't ready for, I, I was thinking maybe 137 billion over like 50, but eight is just so much worse. <laughs> Than 50, my God. So not Keytruda. And I wasn't even trying to talk about cancer drugs. The so so overwhelming sense of defeat washes over host. Mm. Host is going to push through because one of the saviors, honey, is right here on the podcast because that's what <laughs> you're doing to help fight all this stuff. Okay, so let's go into, let's go deeper. What don't we know if like, um, like Sputnik or AstraZeneca is, I mean, I'm sure AstraZeneca has applied for a patent here. Usually patents are published 18 months after they file for it. So we should start seeing now a lot of the early COVID uh, invention pipeline. And so with a company like Pfizer, from what we've seen in the past, they're so big, they want to make sure they are claiming every market for themselves. So usually they do file their patents everywhere. Um, and they have also like, so for pneumonia, right? Pneumonia is the leading killer for children under the age of five. And Pfizer is the one who actually owns that vaccine too. It's called pneumococcal Uh, What we saw about, I think it was about 10 years ago, is that Pfizer started to bring suit, you know, against other manufacturers in Korea, for example, or India to basically block them from using the patents, to basically enforce their patents so that nobody else could bring the vaccine on the market. And the problem with that is they're not making the vaccine available affordably everywhere. And so we still have a pneumonia problem. And so this is why in the context of COVID, so many of us are advocating and saying, look, Pfizer, you're not going to supply everybody. This is about to be your most lucrative product of all time. You're going where the money is. So you're going to the Europeans. You're coming to America. Of course, that's who's going to pay the most. But why don't you let people in other countries make the vaccine too? It's just they're not incentivized by the market to do it. And it's a real that's the failure of our system today. And I think in order for us to understand how we got here, we do need to know a little bit more about our past. And like, what is kind of some of the history of medical patents in the U.S. and globally? Like, where do they get their origins? You, you said, I think you said right after the Constitution. Like, Amer- Yeah, America set up its patent system in 1790. Uh, but it had a very different feel to it, I think, early on. You know, for the first 150 years or so, Uh, of patenting in America, I think the patent office gave out in total 5 million patents. And then in the last 30 years, they've given out 6 million patents. Mm -hmm. So you see that what patents used to be in our country was very different 
You know, I think it started out being a way to reward inventors for coming up with something. And in the last 30 years, it's become a business strategy. It's lost its original integrity. And when it comes to healthcare, it's like people are literally paying with their lives. Yeah. And so is this, could this be this like, is that why there's so, is that one of the engines of like disinformation and why there's so much out there? Because it's like all about protecting the money and like creating buzz around money. I don't know. I feel like it's like, I literally don't, I, I literally actually don't know. I'm just literally processing it in real time. Mm-hmm. So I think, can I answer that? Yes. I think that the companies have incentive to get people vaccinated. But what I don't think we talk about enough is that our like in America, we talk about the healthcare system all the time, right? Because of the fights for like affordable care. We all understand at a vague level what insurance is, what hospitals are. But the lesser known counterpart to the healthcare system is the medicine system. So like you said, from drug development, through patenting, through FDA, how does it get to people? Who gets it? How much do they pay? That whole system, nobody talks about it. It's kind of invisible. And that system has really been um, a source of mistrust for a lot of Americans and a lot of working Americans. It's not a system to be trusted. And so I think that's a lot of what our work is now is how do you make this invisible system very visible to people? So people start to get it and we can start to make it better because right now, as we're seeing in real time, it's not working as well as it should be. And that's true of, I mean, access to HIV medicine, insulin. Mm-hmm. It's true of everything and of, yeah. of literally access to every single medication. It's it's true in, in every single place, but it does affect black and brown people, the global south. It affects uh, low income people much worse because, and, and we've learned from other episodes of Getting Curious Around the Economy and about how mm. all of these systems are really rigged to like punch down. Very seldom yes. do they like punch up to the people who have money because you can typically like buy your way out of it especially if you got that like fucking Pfizer money for crying out loud that's mm-hmm. wow um but so let's can you, that's mm-hmm. wow um but so let's can you help us make it a little bit more visible because I think I'm starting to see it. it's like the medical system our healthcare system it's not like it's that alone doctors need medicine mm-hmm. to prescribe to help heal people hospitals need the medicine they need the equipment and then there is it's like the uh, there's the patent system and then there is the F- or FDA CDC like the governmental regulation which mm-hmm. i guess are both governmental regulation but Not they're just them. But they're very bureaucratic and so layered. And I think yeah. one thing that I've learned about becoming a really forward-facing public figure is in this short amount of time mm-hmm. is that sometimes you're you're building something as you're learning about it at the same time. And so when you're switching administration, like every four years, and actually for so many of those administrations, they probably didn't have the best intentions because this is like literally a country that like you know, made all of its money off of these systems that like literally off of like the enslavement of people and like, you know, two literal genocides. Uh, So this is like a very intense thing. But when you get into the later, like the patent, you know, this, our medical, modern medical system, this is built on a lot of really shifty bureaucracy that was like shifting literally every couple of years, changing wildly. And it's like, no one ever deals with like all of that leftover stuff, I feel like. And it's why you have these like hundred page patents filed at a hundred a time. Lawmakers aren't reading these. Like there's these very specific agencies that are all run by appointees from like a federal appointee that like really 
really does, like you said, affect our lives. And that's why it is so important why we all know who owns these vaccines, who owns these patents. And it is just such a intersectional, multifaceted issue to really pull apart and understand. Yeah. Um, so developed and tested. Can we talk about that a little bit? Who are the mm-hmm. players in development and testing for vaccines? Let's, I mean, obviously there's all drugs, but let's stick yeah. with vaccines. Yeah, no, the COVID vaccine, for example, there are governments around the world that put in over a hundred billion dollars so that we could get vaccines coming out of the pipeline. But those public funds, the taxpayer, we paid for that research was basically handed over to private companies. So if you take a vaccine like Moderna's, America put in $2.6 billion in taxpayer money to pay for that vaccine, then handed it over to Moderna, essentially. So now today, Moderna has all the power to decide who gets that vaccine and who doesn't. So that's one of the things our movement has really been trying to lift up is that this is really unfair because not only is Moderna just raking it in right now, they're going to take that technology platform and they're going to use it for all kinds of other diseases and applications. But they don't have an incentive like in the system to say, let me go make sure that Indian companies or Korean companies or folks in Brazil can also make this vaccine. Let me share the technology and the know-how. They have no incentive. Why would they do that? Then other people would know the secret sauce. So that's where the whole IP system and where the idea of monopoly really comes in for the vaccine is we're in a, between a rock and a hard place right now. You know, people are advocating that the president should use some serious powers that he has under the law to just go in there and grab that technology back. But why did we hand over the rights in the first place when we paid for it? So let's talk about that for a second. So I think this is another thing that I think personally from the research that I've done, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I know that you have worked in this field around COVID vaccination. I know that you know a lot about this. I've read your stuff. I've listened to your stuff. So I know that you have, you, you know about these things, but this research that we paid $2.6 billion to create, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times we hear people say like, oh, this is so new. How did it get done so fast? But wasn't this research being developed that developed mRNA vaccines being done in response to the MERS and SARS outbreaks in 2004 and six? So in reality, yeah. hasn't this research been going on for like 15 years? Yeah, so there's been publicly funded research that's been happening and being built upon and built upon and built upon that allowed us to have this moment where things actually moved forward as quickly as they did. That's a great observation. Uh, And again, it goes to the question of so much of our scientific development today is publicly funded, not just the COVID vaccine, but so many treatments. And yet so many of those drugs, the therapies, the vaccines go into private ownership and are left to the forces of the market. So let's break this down a little bit more. I feel like I read that someone has hypothesized that this type of vaccine, which mm-hmm. an mRNA vaccine is different than like a classic, like, you know, you take some of the deactivated cell, like the deactivated yeah. cowpox, you put it in your little cut and, you know, whatever. Y'all research original origins of vaccines if you haven't done that already, for fuck's sake. But anyway, so but people hypothesize that this could be possible hundreds of years ago, or like, not hundreds, a hundred years ago, but this is the first time that we've ever actually like found a form that works. But really this development came 
kicked into high research and development gear in response to MERS and SARS, which was in like the early 2000s. Like it was in, in it was the Bush administration and they were the ones that were like, ooh, this like respiratory situation, like this could really, we should really get a vaccine prepared if there's like a literal novel coronavirus, mm-hmm. which is what this was, right? So this again goes back to the point of it's building blocks, right? That get us here. We didn't actually have the vaccine ready to go and deploy. That's what pharma would argue. There was work that was required, even in this moment. But you're absolutely right. When it's been the government and universities, you know, through publicly funded research that have been laying all the groundwork and getting the building blocks ready so that somebody else can, you know, so let's break that down a little bit more even. So okay. 2000, so these MERS and SARS outbreaks happen. The Bush administration's like, fuck, we don't want to get caught with our pants down. So then they do, they give grants to say like, I'm just guessing here, but like a Duke, a Harvard, a UNC, a, ten, a Texas, a whoever, whatever universities, mm-hmm. then those scientists at those universities will develop the research to give like the foundation of the literal technology. So it's like, the literal technology that makes the vaccine and then you hand it to this private company, doesn't there have to be an exchange of money there? Doesn't Moderna need to pay like university of whoever the fuck to be like, let's just take, no, it's just a, like we did this because of capitalism. Like this is what we do in exchange for getting all this tuition or something. Like what's that about? I think it's more that we're in an emergency. So we actually paid them both for the development of the vaccine and through advanced purchase commitments. So they were guaranteed a market. Uh, We paid them $2.6 billion. But was that before COVID? I actually haven't checked those contracts, but from what I know from the groups that worked on that piece, that happened when the pandemic hit. So, but basically no matter what the thing is, whether it's a COVID vaccine, whatever that vaccine or medicine, universities will typically develop it or like a company will, their scientists will develop it and then their law firm will deal with it. Are those kind mm-hmm. of the two main avenues in which new medicines and like equipment are arriving from? Oftentimes you'll see universities do a lot of research and then small and medium enterprises, you know, smaller Pharma companies basically will do a lot of research too. And then the bigger companies come along and acquire the knowledge uh, and get the IP around it. And then they commercialize it. They take it through trials. It's very expensive, right? So they're the ones that take it through that process. But in that moment, it's the biggest companies. It's those with the deepest pockets who also get most of the material benefit at that point. So 2.6 billion for the development. What is the relationship between the development of like, you know, a university or like a scientist at a university and then Mm -hmm. handing that over to a private company? Yeah, most universities now have tech transfer offices who negotiate these deals with the big pharmaceutical companies. And there's a bunch of student organizers actually all over the country and the world. Um, They have an organization called Universities Allied for Essential Medicines. And they go in, students, and they advocate to the tech transfer offices, the TTOs, to say, what are you doing? You're just handing this over to the pharmaceutical industry when we know that, you know, this drug, let's say, for this disease actually affects low-income black and brown people or affects people in Latin America 
Why aren't you negotiating to make sure that those communities will actually get the drug? Because what we see time and time again is once the university is handed over, it doesn't reach the people who need them. I don't know if you remember this from, oh, I want to say it was the late 90s with um, the HIV drug D4T. That's where mm. the student organizers first got involved because they knew how much power they had to really shut the university's like uh, freedom down in this way when the universities are just doing this with complete disregard to what's actually going to happen to the invention once it leaves their hands. But they must. So, but the universities must get paid for these inventions. Yes, yeah, it's a huge revenue source. Yeah. So this is the cycle now, right? Is at every point in the system, somebody is making a lot of money. Somebody's making a lot of money and it's the patients and the consumers and the communities who are either lacking access completely or who can't afford their drugs. So the university gets the technology or the company through, you know, small and medium companies. Then we get to the arrival of an, of a drug that they want to test and they want to, uh, they want to test it. So, and that's really expensive. And then by this point, it's the pharmaceutical company who has a technology. So the university is like not really in the driver's seat anymore. Mm -mm. And then how does like that testing situation work? So that's when they start doing clinical trials and they go through the whole FDA process. Uh, and that, you know, the costs of that are disputed. One of the arguments that the pharmaceutical industry has advanced over the years is it's such a huge and costly process. That's why they need to charge so much for their drugs. Uh, and over the years, what we've argued is there's not transparency. So, yes, we realize it's expensive, but you're overstating how expensive it is uh, because there is no transparency. And then more importantly, now we think that it doesn't justify the increase in costs that's happening. Right. America pays two and a half times more any other high income country for our drugs um, in 2019. Uh, I want to say that. The overall spend in America was $370 billion for prescription drugs. But by 2028, that number is going to be $560 billion. So every 10 years, we're doubling what we spend. It doesn't mean we're getting more innovation. It doesn't mean that things got so much more expensive. Uh, yeah. When I was doing hair full time, honey, I raised my haircut prices $5 a year. <laughs> They don't go from 125 to 250 and then from 250 to 500 that like these are this is like in how much Fenty did Rihanna have to sell before she got one billion, honey? Like, oh, my God, y'all, this is like major, huge corruption. When you think to yourself, why don't I have access to health care? Why don't I have access to medicines that would change my life? Why don't I trust these fucking vaccines? Hello, there's a lot of money there, honey. Like, let's peel back these layers. So what does the testing process look like then? So then like the FDA, at least in the U.S., the FDA gets involved. Yeah, they go through the three phases of clinical trials. They put their stamp of approval on it. And then the drug or whatever it is enters the market and it starts going through all the normal channels to get drugs to people. So more manufacturers start to produce it. It reaches hospitals or other healthcare delivery sites. And ultimately, hopefully, it reaches people. Uh, that's kind of the entire medicine system. The reason that we say that patents are so important, though, 
is that at every stage of this system, patents are becoming a roadblock. Like we just have too many patents getting granted. And then the industry is getting really strategic about how they use every tactic in the book uh, to get, for example, they get doctors to switch out their product. They tell them, oh, that we have this newer product now, it's better. And then they use that to get the old one off the market and put a newer version, right? I told you that they keep getting patents on newer versions. And so there's just 101 ways, like tricks that they have in their toolbox that they have figured out how to make sure there's no competition. And we're the ones who are suffering for it. You know, people are burying their children because they can't get insulin. People are saying they can't afford their prep. People are saying that, you know, their grandparents are filing for bankruptcy because all of the most expensive drugs in America are for seniors. Like the whole situation is about to implode. And so that's why we're trying to really draw attention to the system and what needs to be fixed. One thing that I learned from Erin Brockovich, not the movie, like the first thing, because I also like got to interview her. Like, oh, it's cool. like I did, I got to interview her twice. But she says, you know, like Superman's not coming. Don't trust any of these agencies. Like, they're all about money. They're not like mm-hmm. out to protect you. Like, they're all literally built to like cover their own ass. They don't give a fuck about like the individual. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. kind of paraphrasing here, but that's kind of the gist of it. So, you know, for me, you know, a lot of times people are like with COVID vaccines, they're like, uh, it was rushed. It was too fast. I don't trust it. I don't whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be positive i'm literally like i have hiv i'm a queer person like i have every reason to not trust this government like we were like i mean through like you know decades and decades of like oppressing non-binary queer people like to the way that the administration was empowered during the hiv the beginning of the hiv aids epidemic like just so many systems did fail us so i get not trusting mm-hmm. however now we're in a respiratory pandemic that's killed more people in the us in one year than hiv aids has killed ever like hiv aids in the us has killed 700,000 people since it got here covid has killed more than that or 600,000 whatever we're at now mm-hmm. in like a year and a half like this is a really deadly virus so yeah. i guess my question for you is like for you being in this in this industry like do you trust the vaccines, right? So I do trust it. I did take it. And at the same time, I really understand why people don't trust the system. I don't think the system has been trustworthy over time. And so our work, you know, in the HIV movement back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was all predicated on people's rights. And we've moved away from that language. Nobody talks about human rights anymore. It's really not sexy, but you have to start with people and their rights. And what does it mean to actually understand what your medicines and your vaccines are? How do you give people as much information as possible so they understand what they're putting into their body? How do you have a long-term presence in communities who are historically, you know, very hesitant to get healthcare because of the, you know, mistreatment that they receive? Um, I think this is long-term work. I don't think now we're going to flip the people who don't want it. I don't think all the pressure in the world is going to flip folks who have a real deep aversion and reluctance. I think we have to start doing that long game work so that we make the system trustworthy. Mm, dang. So it's almost hard for us to know how we've, how we have seen how patents have come into play with COVID vaccines. Cause this, like, we don't even know what, when they were filed and what they were filed for, like when they, cause they're, they're not out yet. Right. 
Okay, so that's true. But what we do know is how patents have been leveraged and used in every other epidemic and pandemic. We know it from HIV. We know it with hepatitis C. We know it from the other vaccines I told you about. So what we know is that intellectual property, including patents, is used to block competition and make sure that an individual company holds all the power. And based on all of our experiences, you know, advocating, litigating for 25 years, making sure that people get access to the life-saving medicines and vaccines that they need, as soon as this pandemic hit, that's why people started to push for a waiver on IP at the World Trade Organization. Because if you don't have that, you don't have as many manufacturers as possible going because the entire point of patents and intellectual property is to block competition. And if we don't get dozens of manufacturers going across the board, across the globe, we're going to be in the situation we're in right now, where in lower income countries, people aren't getting it. Africa, you know, the entire African continent and India make up a third of humanity. People there aren't getting it. Less than 4% of people have gotten vaccinated. So we're going to stay in this loop too, right? Of variants emerging. And some of them are going to end up being vaccine resistant. And so we need a system where we get this vaccine right now to as many people as possible because we don't want to be in this pandemic longer than we have to be. It's not safe. Do we still have the IP waiver or has it been put back? There's no waiver. What we got, the win that we got that was pretty historic is that the Biden-Harris administration said we're going to support it at the World Trade Organization because India, South Africa and 100 other lower income countries said we need this. So we can start making the vaccine too. But the Europeans are still opposing it. The pharmaceutical industry is still opposing it. So even though it was really amazing that the president came out and said, all right, we're going to support it. We're a long way from done. The negotiations are still going on about whether we're even going to get this waiver. But that's one of the things we're fighting for. So what will it what will it take to make vaccines accessible globally? We need to get the waiver passed. We need IP not to be an issue. This isn't a moment for people to be protecting their corner of the market and their profits, right? So we need the waiver. On top of that, we need a strategy and we need a plan for manufacturing all over the world. Uh, And there are great organizations like Prep for All and Public Citizen here in the U.S. who are fighting for that. And then we need investment. We need more funds put in to build the capacity to retrofit the factories, to do all whatever it takes to make sure that medical products reach people all over the world. It feels like we are so far away. I know that you're I know that IMAC is doing such important work. And I know you said prep for all. Um, How can people get involved in advocacy efforts and and what could a more equitable future look like? I think we are not as far from an equitable future as it seems right now. It seems pretty stark right now. People in other countries are losing hope. I think that's why those of us in America and in Europe have to fight for people across the globe right now because they're not getting the vaccine. Can you imagine still being on lockdown two years into this? Like, and that for the, there's no strategy, there's no plan. And so pushing our governments, we need a global strategy now. We need a plan. We need to waive IP. That's kind of the core thing that needs to happen next. And in the coming months, we need to keep the heat up. Uh, So you can definitely follow us. You can follow me at Preeti Kushtel or IMAC Global um, on Twitter. And we keep putting out information about access to the vaccine and lifting up other organizations who are doing work on different pieces of the medicine system. 
Uh, and I would definitely in this moment follow Prep for All. What Prep for All is doing is they're not only launching a campaign on the COVID vaccine, they're also launching one on Prep and the HIV medications. And so having both of those tracks going at the same time is something that we're going to be a part of and join. And I hope others will too. And Moderna is also, I was reading, has just launched their trials for an mRNA HIV vaccine. So like Moderna is going to be doing like they have like they're literally going to take this technology from the COVID vaccine and repurpose it for all of these other you know, the ailments and, and price it out of reach for so many people. So let me just make sure that I understand this right. Okay. University slash companies who within companies that's like, you know, small and moderate other companies that, you know, mm-hmm. they get squabbled up. They all get paid off. They're like, we got our money. And of course, someone's always sick somewhere. So we'll just keep developing more stuff. They sell it. And then they're like, bye. Then the company they're developing, they take that info, they develop, they develop. Then they submit it for testing. Once testing is done, then it's on to market. And then the whole process keeps going again. Mm-hmm. And Patents really come in there. It's early on. Whoever's first looking into this and doing research is patenting Oh, the university would even do it. And oh, so yeah. You, so they get their own and then they sell it. Exactly. Oh. So then they will, they, will they sometimes sell their patents along with like the technology to the company? Yeah, it depends on the structure of the arrangement, like licensing or uh, handing over either the or. Yeah. And they're like, we want 5%, but this up front or whatever it is. Yeah, there's a negotiation that happens. And they make a lot of money. It's a big revenue source for universities. <laughs> so essentially, like, that's what that that thing is. And then the only other thing that I wanted to ask about, and this is kind mm-hmm. of like, a, you know, just, well, is, is your work and, and your work on kind of learning about COVID vaccines. And I know that you're... Your line is really in transparency and advocating for more access to healthcare. Um, have you, do you know about like, take the pneumonia vaccine versus like the COVID vaccine, like now in light of the FDA approval on Pfizer, like has the COVID vaccine really been tested so much less than another one? Or like, it seems like yeah. it, it has. Usually it takes a lot longer. So here they did get accelerated approval. Uh, that being said, most of the leading scientists we've talked to, including, you know, on our own staff, people who used to be in the pharmaceutical industry uh, at the World Health Organization, most of the leading scientists in the world do find that the results are very, very good. And so I, I am heartened by that. I think it's good. I don't I don't love the idea of having future drug and vaccine approvals expedited. I think there's a reason that we have these processes in place. But I think in the case of an emergency like this, it's served us, you know, and we're, we're seeing if we can get those vaccines out there so everybody can get them and we can stop surges happening, you know, right now across the African continent. We saw surges this year in Brazil and in Indonesia. You know, we got to stop those so the variants stop uh, emerging. And so we're saving a lot more lives. So at IMAC, there will be like people who like used to work for like Moderna, like like work for like someone and they're like, I don't want to be a part of this fucking capitalistic cog. Like I want to do something yeah. good. And then they come over and they work with you guys. Yeah, most of our team came over from the private sector. So either as IP lawyers working for the law firms and the big corporations or on the scientific side from leadership and pharma or in business. 
So then, okay, I have like three more questions. So then like sometimes, <laughs> so, but they're fast. So then like this like more rapid fire because my brain just got the moment. So then yeah, like yeah. sometimes in like the, like in like patent wars, will like, will like uh, someone go try to like get the IP technology of someone else like while they're trying to do the same thing and then like, and then like, and then like, do they like try to sue each other over like if they like. Oh, that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. That's the reason to file all these patents. You're building your wall so you can block everybody out. And if anybody tries to come near your wall, you sue them. So it's a constant litigation is this huge industry. And because we're talking about so much money and I watch too much Netflix drama series, <laughs> is there like, like, do we need to get like anybody like security? Like, are we scared? Is it fine? Everything's fine, right? Like, you're not going to like go over after like the wrong like Pfizer people and they're going to be like, no, it's like, because I, think- I have some really good security people because I'm scared sometimes, <laughs> honey. And so if you ever need like, just let, I, I, they are really fierce and I like them. I'll call you. Yeah, well, not well. We'll just give you their number, Queen. We'll give you their number because you don't want me, honey. I mean, I do have like this. I got a lot of heels. Sometimes I have this like image of like if I'm wearing a mule, I could kick the mule off and like ah, and like run with my patent. Like get away from me. I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like this is like such a great foundational episode for us to like go off on our Getting Curious podcast and learn even more. Is there anything I missed that we need? I know we need to follow. Um, must follow iMac, must follow Prithi Christelle on Twitter, on Instagram. We will put all those links on this episode description, just so you know. Is there like a gorgeous moment at the end that you feel like you like, would you just be remiss if I didn't like that you didn't say or that I didn't ask? I Do we miss anything? I don't think so. I just think it's so great that you're entering the fight for vaccine equity and to make sure people get it. Like we need more People like you getting out there and convincing their listeners for this. So it just means a lot. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We love you so much. Thank you just for your fight. Thank you for everything you're doing. We're such Mm -hmm. big fans. And thank you for coming on Getting Curious. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Preeti Krishtel. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, please, honey, and show them how to subscribe. We really appreciate it when you do that, honey. Please. I'm sorry I said honey twice, but it's just that important. What am I supposed to do? Uh, You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter if you just cannot get enough getting curious. You can find us there at Curious with JVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bosick.